Thank you, Father, for your book in which is written the word of life. Let us hear it and obey it through Christ our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. You might remember that I, called you, uh, that I told you that at one point when God had called me to full-time ministry when I was 35, had three kids, and was working in a management job for the state of California, that I spent some time, actually six months, contending with God. Um, I didn't know that he knew what, we was, what he was about. You know, I mean, was he really talking to me? Was he really asking me to give up that particular job at that particular point, point in time and do this particular thing? But after that six-month period of time when God spoke again, I said, yes, Lord, and never turned back from that time to this. That bears something to do with this story that we're going to be talking about with regard to Jacob. Let's look at Jacob's life. Jacob and Esau, as you will recall, were twins, right? They were born, and uh, Jacob uh, was the second one out, but what was he doing as he came out? Had his hand on the heel of his brother Esau. So literally, they were, they were seconds, maybe a couple minutes apart in their birth. And they should have been close. They should have been friends. They should have been, you know, best, best buddies, best brothers, and all that kind of thing. But, of course, they weren't. They were totally different kinds of individuals. Esau, the strong warrior hunter, the, the pride of his father. Jacob, the guy that went into the kitchen and knew how to cook and, and you know, do all those domestic kinds of things. The joy and pride of his mother. Esau's out hunting one day. He hunts a little longer than he might have, and he comes back, and he's starved, or at least he thought he was. I'm sure he wasn't, but, you know, I'm starved. i got to eat. And, of course, Jacob was in there fixing some lentil stew, and Esau comes in and says, give me a pot of that, you know, some, some of that stew. Oh, I will if you give me your blessing, your firstborn rights. Now, the firstborn rights were two-thirds of his father's possession at the time of his death, plus the lordship over everything that his father had. And Esau sold his birthright for that pot of pudding, of, of, of the uh, stew, uh, stew, lentil stew. So then they grow up, and uh, Isaac's dying, and uh, Rebecca hears uh, that he's going to bless Esau and uh, actually give him the blessing of the firstborn, which he had sold. But that didn't make any difference to Isaac. He was going to give it to him anyway. So she says, look, do this. Uh, you know, get a goat. We'll prepare, I'll prepare it for your father. And you know, we'll go in and deceive him, and you'll get the blessing. And by the way, blessings were extremely significant, and they still are to this day. The blessing that, that uh, Isaac gave was a blessing that was both predictive and prescriptive. In other words, it said what was going to happen, and it helped to bring it about. And so the deception goes, and you know, Jacob's afraid that, that he'll find out and that he'll be cursed instead, and, and his mother says, no, I'll take the curse on me if it happens, and he gets the blessing. Then Esau comes in, of course, and finds out what's happened, and he is not pleased. And he's thinking, my father's going to die soon. When my father dies, I'm going to kill my brother. Then all the problems are solved. I'll, 
I'll have the firstborn rights and I'll have the firstborn blessing and Jacob will be gone. <coughs> of course, his mom hears of this and goes about this thing about, I don't want him marrying these women here, so send him off to, to my house, to Laban, so that he can get a wife and off Jacob goes. And in his hand, he has his staff and that's all he's got. He leaves with no more possession than that. He meets God at Bethel. And he promises God, Lord God, if you bring me back to this spot, then I will worship you and you will be my God. Off he goes to live with Laban for at least 14 years where he gets two wives and where through some amount of conniving, although Laban was also conniving, he manages to pretty much get all of Laban's possessions. Then he flees that area. And he's taking all these possessions. Laban catches up with him, threatens to kill him. But God had appeared to Laban and said, no, don't touch him. He's a prophet. God bless you and keep you. The Lord, you know, uh, you know keep this uh, boundary between us because if you pass over here, I'm going to kill you. So, you know, don't, don't pass over here again. Jacob heads back. Now, he's got his two wives, he's got his 11 sons, and he has an immense amount of possessions and wealth that he had accumulated during that time. But he's coming back into the territory of his brother, the warrior hunter. And he's thinking, boy, this could not, this, this may not go well. And so he sends to his brother messengers who say, say to my Lord Esau, your servant Jacob is coming. My Lord, yes, my older brother. He, now he's recognizing this is my older brother. He actually is my Lord in that sense. The servants go, they come back, and they say, hey, we met him, and he's coming, and with him are 400 warriors. And Jacob is frightened. Now, why did Laban bring these 400 warriors with him? Well, think about it. Who was he coming back to see? He was coming back to see Jacob. Who was Jacob? Jacob was the trickster. What might Jacob be planning that Esau did not know about? What kind of deception might Jacob be working? And so Esau brings his army with him. A very prudent thing to do, considering who he was going to meet. But Jacob didn't have an army, did he? All he had was his wealth and his family and his God. Because as he was coming back, he was approaching Bethel, that very place where he had made his commitment to God. And he said, if you bring me back here, I will worship you as my God, and you will be my Lord. Lord, he says in his prayers, remember my promise. Remember your promise to me that you would bless me and keep me, that you would make me a great multitude. Oh, God! I am utterly and completely and totally dependent upon you. Ron, it's a Psalm 121 situation. If God is my, not my helper, if God is not my defender, if God is not on my side, I am a dead man and everything with me is destroyed or confiscated and taken by my brother. Oh, Lord, have mercy on your servant and remember your promises. Then, 
He's thinking, oh, what can I do? I mean, in other words, I'm, I'm, I'm trusting in God, but what can I do? What, what can I plan? And so he divides his, his, his wealth into two camps, and he sends gifts ahead of him. Remember that? He sent these little groups of people with a lot of goats and, and camels and things like that, and each one was spaced a certain distance, so they would come to Esau's. He was coming. These are gifts from your servant. Uh, you know, Jacob, these are, these are gifts to you. My Lord, Esau, these are gifts. And, you know, each one comes and it's supposed to soften him up. And then they meet. Esau says, what were these things you've sent? And Esau is thinking, Jacob has changed. How did Jacob change? You see, Jacob had been contending with God all of his life. Jacob had been contending with others all of his life. And God meets him by the brook Jabbok and Jesus, the incarnate, the pre-incarnate Christ, actually physically wrestles with him. Now, there are some commentators who say this wrestling match never took place. This is a poetic way of saying Jacob was struggling in his mind about what he'd done, and he was, he was struggling with the issues of life, and he was coming to grips with, with who he was. And, and No, no, no. God, in the pre-incarnate form of Christ, actually appeared to him, actually wrestled with him as one man wrestling with another. And as the, as the night went on, Jacob was prevailing against this man. Now, now think about this. You are alone in your tent, thinking tomorrow's going to be the big day, and all of a sudden a stranger walks into your tent and starts grappling with you and wrestling. I mean, what kind of thing is that? I mean, Jacob must have been, what's going on here? But hey, he was up for the fight. And he soon recognized that this was no ordinary man. And as day broke, the angel of the Lord says to him, let me go. No. Touches his hip. I think this is not fair play, right? <laughs> Puts his hip out of joint. But then Jacob says, I'm not going to let you go unless you bless me. Blessing. What was the first blessing? Isaac gives him the blessing of the firstborn son. That wasn't enough. That wasn't enough for Jacob to be who Jacob needed to be. Jacob needed the blessing of God himself. What is your name? Where had he been asked that question before in Scripture? Who are you, my son? I am Esau, your firstborn. Of course, it was Jacob lying. Now we come to the truth. Who are you? And all of a sudden, he stops and he thinks about his name and what it means. I am heel grabber. I am ne'er-do-well. I am thief. I am cheater. I am debased. I am nobody. You're right. That's exactly who you are in your own strength. You are a deceiver. You are a ne'er-do-well. You are a cheater. But in my strength, I call you Israel. He who wrestles with God and prevails. Now, some commentators, particularly Hebrew commentators, state that that name Israel means wrestling with God, Ron, so that God might prevail. In other words, all the wrestling that's going on is in order that God would prevail. 
that God's will would be done in your life. And so even as he was cheating and scheming and devising everything against his brother, he was seeking blessing. He was seeking God. He was just seeking him in the wrong way. But he was seeking him. And God, who knows the hearts of all, sees that and says, now I am transforming you. Now I am making you who you must become in order to fulfill your destiny. How many of you, how many of us, have contended with God over various things, whether they're family matters or health issues or issues of the nation or, or whatever. And we contend with God. But our contention ought always to be, Lord, I, I don't understand. I'm struggling. But God, I want you to prevail in this circumstance. I want you to prevail in this situation. I want your will to be done. I see Paul saying, oh, wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from this bond of death? I see Jesus saying, not my will but yours be done. And so Jan, as the healing doesn't come, Bob, as the transfusions continue, and you say, God, why? What's going on? But God, I recognize that you are sovereign. I recognize that you are Lord. And I recognize that you love me and have my best interests at heart. And God, I yield myself to you, even in the midst of circumstances I don't understand, I don't like. But I want you to transform me to the measure of the stature of the fullness of your son, Jesus Christ, so that I might bear his name before the world about me. <laughs> the story of the unjust judge. Priceless story. Here's this man who has authority. Here's this man who has power. Here's this man who can determine life and death issues for others. And he neither fears man nor respects God. But he's a high-class status individual. He's up there with the biggies. He has friends who are influential. He has friends in high places. He has people for whom he can do favors. He has people who can bribe him and make him even wealthier than he is already. He has a certain social status, and he wants to defend that status. So here comes this widow. Now, who knows what the widow's issue was? Some suggest it was a land issue, that she had been deprived of her property, and she was coming to him asking that her property would be given back. Now, remember, God loves widows and orphans, does he not? But here's this judge, doesn't fear God, doesn't love God, doesn't honor God, doesn't fear man, and he's saying, no, maybe one of his friends was the one that had seized whatever it was that she wanted back. And he knew her cause was just. He knew that already. But he was denying her justice in his social position. <laughs> but this woman didn't stick to her social status, did she? Mary, she comes and she pesters this guy. Give me justice. I can imagine this guy after work going out with his buddies to have an amphora of wine and maybe some lamb. He's sitting down to eat and here's this woman outside. Give me justice. Give me, and he's sitting there trying to, oh my goodness, this is embarrassing. I can't even eat in peace. 
She's wearing me down day after day. She did not recognize her status as a widow. And you see, as a widow, she was poor because she deserved it, right? Remember the story of the, of the lepers last week that they deserved what they got. It had to be some sin in their life that they were born lepers or that they became lepers later in life. And so this woman, as a widow, the loss of her husband, the loss of her wealth, that was what she deserved. Even though it was unjust, but she should have known her place. No. She knew that God had something better for her that God had justice for her. And so she continued to come and bug that man. And he couldn't get any peace. She's wearing me out. I can't even sleep at night anymore. And so I will give her justice. Not because I fear God, not because I fear man, but because she's going to wear me out otherwise. Then we get the crux of the matter. Will not God, the same God who appeared to Jacob and changed his name, will not God give what his people need to them and give it to them speedily? See, God is not like the unjust judge. God is like the God who had patience with Jacob until he could transform him into Israel. And God is a God who is listening and hearing. Janny's hearing your prayers. Bobby's hearing your prayers. He is listening. But you see, we are in the already redeemed, but not yet realizing the fullness of our redemption. Remember the sermon I preached on the already, but not yet? There's that tension there. And that tension will remain until the coming of Jesus. But God is not the unjust judge. God is the hearing judge. God is the responding person. God is the loving Father who wants to transform, who wants to change your circumstance and situation, who has already given you a new name that is in the palm of his hand that he will write on your forehead at the end of time. God is on your side just as he was on the side of Jacob. I lift my eyes to the hills. I don't know how many of you saw the Lord of the Rings when the, the, the host of Rowan was, was in their keep and they're, they're almost losing and, and Gandalf had gone off to get the armies of Rowan who had been uh, sent out of Rowan and there's this scene where there's this mountainside and Gandalf comes and there's this shining light and they come down the hill and they defeat the orcs. And, you know, some of you are looking like, what? What's he talking about? Well... I like the story, and I, and I love the movie. But the point is, they were looking to the hills. They literally, literally were looking to the physical hills. And in, in the olden days, that, that's where armies would, like, would, would try to get. they try to get onto the high ground. Because the high ground gave them an advantage over their enemies. But when your enemy is Satan, the high ground, physical high ground, gives you no advantage at all. I'll look to the hills. No, that's not where my help comes from. My help comes from the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. And six times in this passage, it says, he is the one who will deliver you. He is the one who will save you. He is the one who will keep you. He is the one who will sustain you. I look to him because it is him and it is from him that my help will and must come. 
Jacob for all of his conniving, all of his scheming, all of his planning, dividing the camps, sending the gifts. If God had not intervened, none of that would have helped him. His help had to come from the same place our help must come from. It must come from Jesus. It must come from heaven. It must come from places that are higher than us. And because of that, we preach his word. Timothy, Paul taught. Now, here's Paul. He's dying. He's in prison. He knows his days are numbered. And he's writing to Timothy. Timothy, I want you to finish strong. Timothy, what are you going to do when I'm no longer there? And we have other passages where it says Timothy was in tears with regard to the situation Paul was in. Timothy himself really didn't know how well he could go on without Paul by his side. Ron, you become a priest. Jason becomes a priest who's by your side to help you, to give you grace, to help you get into the world. God himself has to be there. He himself has to be your source and your strength. But there might be some other mentor, some other person who can bless you. But at some point, you'll be in your own congregation. You'll be by yourself. How will you sustain the preaching of the word when no one else is there? The hand you've been holding is no longer there. You have to depend upon him to give you the direction, help, and strength that you need. But each one of us. Now, we're not called upon all of us to preach and teach. Not all of us are evangelists. Not all of us are pastors or teachers. But all of us are witnesses to, the, to God and to his kingdom. And all of us have to be faithful to the word that he has given to us and to instruct and to help people understand who it is that gives us our strength, who it is that gives us our blessing, who it is that gives us our life. It is in him that we live and move and have our being. He sustains us and keeps us. And we need to be faithful ministers of his word, whether we're missionaries or priests in, in the making or priests who are already, you know, over the hill a little bit, I mean, a little old. You know. No. It is a realization that God's word provides us with everything that we need. By way of truth. By way of comfort. By way of encouragement. And we are to give that same encouragement to others that he gives to us. We are to go where he is not known. That others might know who he is through the faithfulness of what we do. And sometimes it is not easy. Sometimes it is very, very difficult. But we remain faithful. And here, fires at the school, Calamesa. And we're saying, look, there, there are these families who have need. And they're asking this congregation who has shown themselves faithful over the years, can you help us with gift cards or with clothing or whatever? This is part of being faithful to the preaching of the word, being sober-minded, being complete in him, and living before those around us a life of love reflecting his glory. Jacob's life did not always reflect the glory of God. Even after he became Israel, I, I hate to say it, but his life still had shortcomings and failings. And each of us have our own shortcomings and failings, but he is renewing us. He is strengthening us. He is going to come for us to redeem us and take us to himself. And in the meantime, in this in-between phase, we remain faithful.
we study the word. We know it is the source of truth. And we declare it in word and in action wherever we go that he might be lifted up, that he might be glorified until we are completely transformed and we come into his presence as Jacob came into his presence that day. We don't know the day. We don't know the hour. But we know it's coming. For some, maybe sooner than others. But what a joy to know that his transforming power as it worked in Jacob, as it worked through that widow, that same transforming power works in you and in me through Christ our Lord. Amen.